Welcome to the King's Church Podcast. At the King's Church, we exist to see a greater worship of Jesus through declaring and displaying the gospel. You're about to listen to a sermon from our weekly corporate worship gathering. If you want to follow along with the sermon notes, they can be found on our website, kingschurchlkld.com. Well, good morning, church. You guys can grab a seat. I haven't had a chance to meet you yet. Uh, My name is Ian. I'm one of the pastors here at the King's Church. It's my honor and privilege to open up most weeks God's Word for us. At this time, if you guys are in Kingdom Kids, classroom number three, you can head back to the door and meet your superstar teachers there and have a great time hanging out in the back. If you need to get a coffee refill or anything, uh, feel free to do so as well. Well, we've been walking through an Advent series this December here at the King's Church that we've entitled Waiting for the King. And we've been examining how God's people have always been a waiting people. And so we've looked at examples from that from the Old Testament. Of course, the story of Christmas is the story of people who waited and waited and waited until the birth of the Messiah, the Savior that we just sang about. But the reality of Advent is not actually just wrapped up in Christmas. It actually is meant to drive us forward to Christ's promised second coming. You see, the words that we just sang, O come, O come, Emmanuel, those are just as true today as they were back then. See, we still are waiting for the fulfillment of the greatest promise that Jesus has said regarding his return for his people, and we still wait for that today. And so this morning, what we're going to do is we're actually going to jump way ahead, right? If you're here and you're waiting for the Christmas story, sorry, we have Christmas fire instead this morning, right? Second week in a row, we've got some fire involved. But what we actually want to do is move ahead and look, what exactly is it that we're waiting for? We've acknowledged that Jesus has promised to return, and that's the hope that we cling to as God's people. But what is it exactly that we await? What is in the future for us? And that's precisely what Peter says to us in 2 Peter chapter 3. And to do that, we're going to look at Peter's description of the end of the world as we know it. Now, we as a people in general, we have a fascination with the end of the world, don't we? I mean, we love a good disaster, mass destruction, Armageddon-type movie, don't we? I mean, how many versions of Godzilla have been made throughout history, right? And I'm not saying that derogatory, because Pastor Ryan and I, we love Godzilla. Like, we're all in on that. That's, that's a fascinating movie. But we are just fascinated by it. But here's the thing. I think we like thinking about the end sort of as a trivial matter that actually doesn't have anything to do with our lives today. That's why we love a good disaster movie, partly because it stays outside of ourselves. It can be entertainment that we watch and enjoy, and then we go back to our real lives as we know it. And I think the danger is we can have this type of posture as the church. And Peter's going to warn us, no, no, if we know what's coming in the end, it ought to affect the way we live our lives today. And here's the other thing with the church. We have to acknowledge this, too. People can get real weird about the end times, can't they? Can we just acknowledge that for a moment? I mean, there's been famous personalities and groups that come along every so couple years, and they start to predict, hey, guess what? I've done the math, and the world is ending on this date. Right? Maybe some of you were around for the famous predictions back in the 80s for those. The most famous in my lifetime was the prediction Harold Camping made back in 2011. Everybody remember that? He pinpointed that on this certain date in May at like 5.30 p.m. Eastern time that Jesus was coming back. A rapture was going to take place and the end of the world would be ushered in. 
I actually remember sitting in my apartment in Tallahassee, and when the time came when Harold said that it was all going to end, I remember looking out my window, and there's actually the most beautiful sunset that I've seen in a long time. And it was almost like God sort of poking fun and saying, ah, don't forget who's actually in control here. Right, but we have to deal with these weird prophecies, and the Bible can be weird about the end times, but I think the uncomfortable truth is that we don't like talking about the end too much because although we want Jesus to come back, we don't really want him to come back right now, do we? I mean, we long for that day, but don't some of us have a bucket list of things that we want to accomplish before that happens? I mean, we say, yes, Jesus, fulfill your promise, but do we really want that kind of interruption into our lives right now? You see, Peter is going to help us there because what I want us to see this morning is that this is not just for entertainment. This is not just some wishful thinking that's out there. When the Bible talks about the end, it's meant to do something within us. It's meant to produce something in our lives right now as we wait in this Advent season for his return. And it's meant to point us to our only hope in the midst of a dark and broken world that's full of suffering and unfulfilled longings and all the things that we try to act like aren't happening in the Christmas season. So if we know how the story ends, it ought to change our lives right now. So here's the main idea I want us to see as we look at 2 Peter 3 today. Though it feels delayed, God is patiently bringing his kingdom as we wait in holiness and godliness. Though it feels delayed, God is patiently bringing his kingdom as we wait in holiness and godliness. To see that main point, we're going to work through three movements in the text. We're going to look at a world of transcendence, first and foremost. Secondly, a God of patience. And then lastly, we'll consider ourselves that we are called to be a people of holiness. But before we jump in, let's pray and let's ask the Lord to bless our time in his word. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this Advent season, this season that the church always finds ourselves in. As we look back to your first coming at Christmas and then we long with expectation for what is to come in the future. So Lord, as we step into this Christmas season, as we gather together this morning to hear from your word, may you fill us and equip us with what we need to live lives of godliness and holiness as we await the day that is long promised. Lord, may you use your word to encourage us, to stir up a worship of Jesus within us. Help us to see where we're missing the mark and draw us in your kindness to repentance, to turn away from everything else we're chasing and to run back to you. So Lord, may you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to understand, and may you speak through your word as we gather as your people. May you accomplish your will in this place, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's begin by looking at this idea of a world of transcendence and jump back into the text. If you'll follow along with me, I want to read the first four verses of chapter 3 once again. Peter says, this is now the second letter that I am writing to you, referencing back to 1 Peter. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. 
And so Peter here is writing to this scattered group of Christians throughout Asia Minor, and he's been warning them all throughout 2 Peter, listen, false teachers are coming. He's warning them that some are going to come into their church community and with their sinful desires for greed and for sensuality, they're going to try and sway people away from the truth that God has delivered them. So he begins by reminding them, and this is an important reminder for us, don't forget what God has already given you. Don't forget that God has written to you through the prophets and the apostles. See, Peter's trying to emphasize, I'm not telling you anything new. Everything that I'm exhorting you, everything that I'm encouraging you can be found in this book. It can be found through the prophets in the Old Testament, through the apostles in the New Testament, which are equal in their weight and authority. And Peter's saying, listen, when false teachers come, you must evaluate their teaching by this book. You must evaluate all that you are hearing by my words that I have graciously given you. This must be your standard. Because... Scoffers are coming. In fact, scoffers had already come in the time of Peter. This word scoffer means a mocker or a deceiver. And what they are scoffing relates directly to Advent. Right? They're saying in a very derogatory sense, well, Jesus promised to come back, but where is he? After all, it just kind of seems like the world's continuing as it always has. You're waiting for this promise from this guy who was dead and then claimed to be raised and then was ascended into heaven, but uh, where exactly is he? You see, they're scoffing, they're saying, that belief is silly. Now, we have to take a step back from what Peter's writing in 60 AD or so. Last time I checked, it's the end of 2019, right? I mean, we were talking about 2,000 years later, and Peter's warning about scoffers back then. Do you think that we deal with the same thing today? 2,000 years of history has gone by, and Peter says, watch out for the scoffers. Watch out for those who will ask that question, well, where is he? And what I want us to see for a moment is, you know, Ecclesiastes says there's nothing new under the sun. The argument that they make is eerily similar to the arguments we hear today, isn't it? I mean, if we essentially break down this argument, it is the secular argument that's become the predominant worldview in the Western part of the world. I mean, they're claiming ever since the fathers fell asleep, ever since the Old Testament, uh, all things are just continuing as they have from the beginning of creation. Essentially, they're saying... Everything is just sort of carried on as it has from the start. There's no God who's coming. Right? There's no intervention from any sort of divine figure. Or there's no transcendence breaking into this world. Time just keeps ticking. History and the future, they're merely marching forward. That's all there really is to this world. And to assume otherwise is just foolish, wishful thinking. You're waiting for what promise? It's been 2,000 years. You see, this is essentially the argument that is popular in the secular world today. But here's the thing, let's take a step back for a moment. If this claim is really true, if the universe just happens to exist here by random and everything is being guided by impersonal forces, then life is pretty pointless and meaningless, isn't it? I mean, sure, we should eat, drink, be merry, make the best of it, leave the world a better place than we found it. Those are noble endeavors. No one's going to stop you from enjoying that extra Christmas cookie, right? By all means, enjoy your life. But if that's really all there is, what are we living for? What are we, what's our purpose in this world? Last week, there was a really interesting and somewhat startling article in the op-ed section of the Wall Street Journal by someone who identified as a psychoanalyst. I'm not even sure fully what that is, but it kind of terrifies me. 
the author identifies herself as, a, as Jewish in faith, but the title of the op-ed is this. It says, don't believe in God, question mark, then lie to your children. And the subtitle is this. I'm not making this up. The alternative is to tell them they're simply going to die and turn to dust. Merry Christmas, everyone. <laughs> I mean, that's literally the subtitle. I can't make that up. She's drawing observations and data about how young children and adolescents who grow up in more religious homes are better equipped to handle life. They're less likely to struggle with severe anxiety and depression and things like that. Now, I think her tactics and suggestions might be a little forward if we're looking at that title, but there is something haunting about that subtitle, isn't there? There's something a bit eerie about that. Are we merely just going to die and turn to dust? I mean, is that really the existence of humanity spiraling forward with no intervention? You see, here's the secular argument. Here's the argument that Peter's scoffers are making. By claiming there's no God and claiming that human history is just spiraling forward as it always has, it attempts to put a ceiling over our world, sort of a lid or a dome on it of sorts. It says, listen, anything worth knowing is something that is real, something that can be found underneath that ceiling, underneath that lid. The things that we can observe, the things we can touch, taste, test, and feel, that's what you should be focusing on. You shouldn't be focusing on anything outside of that ceiling. I mean, we could run all this stuff through the scientific method, for example. But anything that can't, that's just kind of silly faith. That's belief in something that's a fairy tale, just to make ourselves better about our lives. You see, the scoffers warned about in the first century AD are the same thing we're encountering today. So how does Peter respond to this, and how do we respond to this? Well, he points to three things. Look at verse 5. It says, first and foremost, for they deliberately overlook. There's an intentionality to that argument. They deliberately overlook three things. The first thing's in verse 5. This fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. Peter says, whoa, 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 before you go down that claim, the fact that this world even exists begs a massive question. Where did this all come from? And Peter says the fact that creation itself exists points to a God who intervened once before. It points to a creator God who, the beginning of the scriptures tell us, spoke the universe into existence by word. That he caused there to be something when there was nothing. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Which means creation itself, look around at the world, it's supercharged with the glory of God. It's full of the grandeur and the splendor of God himself. Peter's saying, listen, if God created it, don't you think he can still intervene in it? And that's precisely where he goes for his second example in verse 6. He continues, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. He's reminding them of the flood. He's saying God intervened to create everything, and once before in history, he intervened to bring judgment. He's not like the deistic version of God where he's this sort of divine clockmaker. Where yes, he creates the world, and he winds up the clock, and then he takes a step back, and everything just continues. No, no, Peter says God is involved. He's already been involved in the past. He brought judgment in the flood. He's involved all the time. And then number three in verse seven but by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. 
You see, the two themes of creation and destruction come together in this last example. Peter's saying, don't forget God's judgment in the future. God is storing everything up. That word for stored actually means to preserve, to save it. It reminds us that Hebrews 1.3 talks about Jesus in this way. It says, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. You see, God is not uninvolved. He's not distant. Right now, Jesus, our crucified, risen, ascended Savior, is upholding the universe by speaking it into existence, by holding all things together. Peter cannot be any clearer. He's saying God created it. He has the right to intervene within it, and he's the one who's preserving it right now. And notice the connection between those three examples. It's the word of God. It's that same word of God that created. It's the same word that brought judgment. It's the same word that's upholding the universe right now. That's why Peter says, don't forget what God has already told you. Don't forget his word. It is trustworthy for you. Well, I'm going to cheat. I'm going to add a fourth thing to that list. So not only is it creation, not only is it the flood, not only is it God's sustaining of the universe right now, the fourth thing to think about this morning is Christmas, right? I mean, Christmas is the supreme example that God is intervened in his creation. Christmas reminds us, and it tells the story that the infinite, almighty God became an infant. That the creator and sustainer of all things entered into our world, into space and time, as a humble, desperate child. As one author has said, Christmas tells us that the fullness of God dwelt embryonically. The maker of all things became a man, and he came to us bearing flesh and blood to be like us and ultimately to save us through his own life, death, and resurrection. You see, Christmas reminds us that all of the promises of God's coming for thousands of years in the Old Testament, they're actually true. It's not mere wishful thinking. It's not a fairy tale. It's the real thing. And because of that, this is a time of year where people just feel something transcendent, don't we? I mean, there's some aura of significance in our world around Christmas, but most people don't know what to do with that. There's something deep within our souls that this season activates with significance, with worship. I mean, we hear people who have no association with Jesus singing the truths of the gospel and Christmas songs, don't we? I was listening to the best Christmas album of all time, which is, of course, Mariah Carey's this week. And, I mean, the lyrics there are loaded. It sings of the truths of the gospel. There's something about this season that just beckons us to sing, isn't there? See, Christmas is a bit of the crack in that secular ceiling. There's something about this purely secular worldview that makes perfect sense until something breaks in and feels transcendent. It can be a death. It can be the birth of a child. It can be a wedding. It can be a significant graduation or a brand new friendship that all of a sudden is filling all these things that you didn't know you needed in your life. Or it can be Christmas. But we encounter a kind of beauty that can't be explained by merely chemical connections in our brain. When we encounter something that makes us long for something else, what a great opportunity we have as the church. Listen to what Mike Cosper says in describing this reality. He says, imagine secularism like a dome. 
Everything inside the dome is the realm of imminence. It's the things that are close. Outside is the realm of transcendence. People whose imaginations are formed by life in a secular age bump their heads on the ceiling of the dome when they veer near ideas that involve transcendence, be they religious, moral, or aesthetic. Herein lies the curse of secularism. Ecclesiastes 3 says God has put eternity in the hearts of men. The imminent frame is ultimately a dissatisfying place to live because it shackles the human heart inside a world that is simply too small for it. Our longing for transcendence can't be squelched, nor can it be satisfied. You see, that's what the scoffers are claiming. But yet, we look at the world around us and we know there's got to be something more. There's got to be something more going on here. And brothers and sisters, one of the calls of the church, this time of year especially, is to explain why that longing for transcendence can't be satisfied by the stuff around you. Why those longings can't be squelched in the dynamic that we were actually made for something more. I mean, do you feel that this time of year? Do you feel that pressure of there's got to be something bigger than this? Well, if you do, the good news is Peter wants to continue to encourage us. And if you don't feel it, I pray you'd consider the words of Peter. Consider what he's saying here. Keep listening to the word of God. Because not only do we live in a world of transcendence, secondly, we have a God of patience. Look at verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. See, Peter's lifting our eyes up from our present circumstances. He's saying the fact that Jesus has not returned yet, it's not because God has failed to keep his word. It's not because he's disregarded his promises. No, it's an issue of perspective. No matter how you cut it, we as finite human beings have a limited perspective on time. Yes, we deal with time on a daily basis. When we start to think about the fact that God, if he exists, is eternal, that he has always existed, he will always exist in the future, and he stands outside of time, you start to think about that for more than a minute and your brain's going to hurt, isn't it? I mean, we are limited in our understanding of time, and so Peter draws our attention to the oldest of the Psalms. Psalm 90 is a Psalm of Moses. It contrasts and compares the nature of God versus the nature of mankind, and guess what? God's nature is eternal, and mankind's is very finite. See, we have a limited perspective. What we might deem as slow might just be a blip on the radar. What we might deem as a thousand years could just be a drop in the water of the ocean of time for God. Let's think of it this way. It's sort of how children view time. So there was this famous psychological experiment. I'm realizing now I have lots of psychological things in here. I apologize for that. Uh, But you're probably familiar with this. There was this experiment done 20, 30 years ago. They put these four and five-year-olds at a table with one person who comes in and he puts a marshmallow in front of the child. You know the experiment I'm talking about? And the tester says, listen, you can eat this marshmallow right now if you want it. It's a delicious marshmallow. I'm sure it'll taste good. But if you wait 15 minutes, I will bring a second marshmallow. And you can enjoy both of them at the same time. And then the tester gets up and walks out of the room, marshmallow in front of the child. Guess what 80 to 85% of those children do? I mean, immediately. The minute the door closes, I'm eating that marshmallow. 
right? Why is that the case? Well, because they have a limited perspective on time. They can't grasp fully that 15 minutes from now, my enjoyment and pleasure of this marshmallow could be doubled. I mean, that could be awesome. I could get two. But instead, their perspective is limited. They can only see what's right in front of them, and they eat that marshmallow right away. Now, some of you are questioning whether or not you could pass that experiment. That's a good question for you. Maybe you should think about that. But Peter's warning us, this is our situation right now. This is exactly our situation as the church. For the Lord, the categories of fast and slow, they're all about perspective. And we simply do not have the perspective to deem something as being eternally slow or eternally fast. But that doesn't change the question why he's delayed, which is exactly where Peter goes in the next verse. He says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And oh, what good news that is, isn't it? I mean, God is delaying his return. Whether we deem it slow or fast doesn't matter. The Lord has not yet returned because he is creating time for repentance. He is slowly and in his kindness saying, you can still turn to me. He's waiting to bring the promise of his kingdom in its fullness because he's not wishing any should perish, but that all might reach repentance. This is the consistent theme of the whole scriptures. In the Old Testament, the Lord says, I do not delight in the death of the wicked. In the New Testament, it says he desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, there's some mystery here we have to acknowledge. We're forced to reconcile the fact that what God desires is not seemingly obvious in the world around us. Not everyone is believing or has believed. Not everyone is turning with repentance. And all of this does not eliminate God being sovereign over salvation. But quite frankly, this is a divine mystery that we're not going to solve this morning. And it's not the point in what Peter is writing. Instead, here's what we need to focus on. Every minute that goes by is another minute closer to his return. Every day that goes by more people come to be saved by his grace. Think of it this way. If the Lord had returned 100 years ago, none of us would have made it in. But yet the Lord has tarried. He has delayed. And delaying his return allows his saving work to continue in our time today as Jesus continues on his rescue mission to seek and save those who are lost. You see, the scoffers and the mockers, they use God's delay to argue against him. When Peter's saying, no, 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 don't use that against him. Instead, his kindness, his patience with you in delaying, it ought to lead you to repentance. It ought to lead you to turn away from everything else you're chasing after and to run to the Savior, to run to the throne of grace where God promises you will find mercy and help in your time of need. And here's the beautiful thing about this entry point. Anybody can get in on it. He doesn't say that he's waiting for the good people to realize who he is. He's not saying he's waiting for those who are righteous to all of a sudden realize what's happening and enter the kingdom. No, he says that anyone who repents, and guess what? Repentance is an equal opportunity offender for you and me. Every single person in this room has made mistakes. Every single one of us has fallen short of the glory of God, and anybody can get in on his grace. No one is too far gone. 
You might say, you don't know what's happened in my life. I assure you, no one is too far gone. Jesus is inviting us to repentance. All of us have sinned. All of us can get in on this. If that's you here this morning, if you've never put your faith in Jesus, I want to urge you, don't delay. Peter's saying one of the reasons why Jesus has not yet returned might be so that you get to be a citizen in his kingdom. So that you might have your heart turned towards the Lord to see the beauty of the sacrificial love of Jesus. And that you might have life and life abundance because of that. If that's you this morning, don't delay. Don't put that off because Peter moves on to his next point. And the next point is while this delay might seem long, though it might even seem like forever to us, the Lord is coming. He will surely return, which is what he moves to in verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Now, Peter's using some very descriptive language here. In fact, it's a little crazy if we could just call it that. And scholars have long debated, what in the world is Peter trying to say here? Well, here's my best stab at my study of this passage. This teaches us three things about the return of Jesus. We'll move from the obvious to the less obvious. The first is that the return of Jesus, it will be unexpected. He compares the day of the Lord, which by the way means the day where it's all about Jesus. The day where all will see him for who he really is, the Lord of lords and King of kings. It will be like a thief. And Jesus talks about himself this way. The apostle Paul uses the exact same language. But think about a good thief for a moment. A good thief comes unannounced and unexpected. I mean, if the thief announced his presence and said, be ready on this time, not a very good thief, is he? You'd immediately catch him. But Jesus says, no, I'm coming at a time that's unexpected. And I'm coming back. Surely I am. So therefore, be ready. Be awake. Be vigilant. Pay attention. I will surely return. And when that happens, number two, the old things will pass away. Peter uses this language of burning and dissolving, which is common in the Bible when it references the end, but this is likely symbolic language. In fact, his word here for heavenly body is actually the same word that's used in the prophets. And here's how, for example, Isaiah 34 references this. Isaiah 34, in writing about the coming of God to the nations, he describes this scene like this. All the host of heaven shall rot away, and the skies shall roll up like a scroll. The imagery here is not one of destruction, but one of the sky being peeled back, where all can see what lies behind the curtain, so to speak. You see, the scoffers claim that reality is all under this dome, as Mike Cosper said. But those scoffers will be put to shame when the sky is rolled back and all will see the transcendence that lies beyond. If you know the famous hymn, It Is Well, it captures this. As one verse says, it says, Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. And listen to what it says. The clouds will be rolled back as a scroll. And then the trump shall resound, the Lord shall descend, and even so, it is well with my soul. That's the picture that Peter is painting for us. The sky will be rolled back and all will see decisively what reality really is. And then thirdly, everything and everyone on earth will be exposed. The idea of exposed literally means to be laid bare for all to see. 
Peter is saying judgment will take place because God is making something new out of all of this. It's important to see again, God's not coming to destroy everything. No, he's coming to make all things new. The rest of the passage will make this clear. This exposure that's taking place is not some impersonal thing. No, the Lord himself comes. And when he comes, there will be a personal encounter with him and all of our works will be exposed. Judgment will take place. That ought to sober us for a moment, but never forget, if you're here and you have put your faith in Jesus, your judgment day has been moved to the past tense. Your judgment day happened when your sins were judged in Jesus' body on the cross, where he took our place so that now, Romans 8 says, we can live with no condemnation. And so for the Christian, this is a sobering day, but it's also a hopeful day. This is the day that we are awaiting when our faith will be sight and the Lord will make righteousness out of everything that's gone wrong in this world. Now the question still has to be answered, so what? Pastor Ian, why in the world are we talking about this three days before Christmas? Well, Peter says, this matters for your life right now. He's telling the church, this is what's going to happen, and you ought to live in a particular way because of that. And that's our last point, that we are to be a people of holiness. A people of holiness. Look how Peter closes the passage. He says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you be? In lives of holiness and godliness, waiting and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Peter says, all of this is going to happen, so then how should you live? Well, first of all, in holiness and in godliness. After all, if God's people know the real story, we ought to live in such a way that reflects that, shouldn't we? Holiness means we live a life that's set apart. It's a life that's dedicated and consecrated in service to God. There ought to be something different in the life of a Christian than what the world offers. This is a similar idea to godliness. Godliness means we live in such a way that the aroma of Christ comes off of us. And notice Peter doesn't put specifics on this. I kind of wish he did personally. He's not giving us a list of, hey, in these areas of your life, live holy and live like God does. No, he says, live lives of holiness and godliness. You know what that means? All of life is meant to be lived in holiness and godliness. All of life is to be a pursuit by God's grace of these things. And the reason why, brothers and sisters, is because holiness and godliness have eternal value. Everything done for Christ in this life will pay dividends in the next. That's exactly why Jesus urges us in the Sermon on the Mount not to store up treasures on earth, but to store up treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. You see, lives of holiness and godliness are not missing out on the good life here on earth. They're showing people what the good life really is. They're showing people what is coming in Jesus' promised return. Now, part of holiness and godliness is acknowledging that we don't do that perfectly, right? We, you and I, we do not live perfectly holy and godly lives, but our continual repentance and faith, 
our continual owning up to our sin and running back to Jesus, they serve as little reminders of the kingdom that broke in at Christmas and is coming again. So that ought to make all of us pause for a moment. Is your life really marked by these things? Is your life marked by holiness and godliness? This Christmas season, does your life look any different than the people around you who don't believe in Jesus? Are there areas that in response to God's kindness, because he died for your sins, that you need to simply confess of those things, turn from them, and run back to your Savior? Remember, each and every day that the Lord delays his return, it's an opportunity for repentance. And that's just not for people out there who need to repent for the first time. That's for every single one of us. God's kindness draws us to repentance day by day. And in addition to this, Peter says we should have a posture of waiting for and hastening the day of the Lord. Now, we don't use the word hasten very often today, but it means to speed up or to quicken. Now, I don't know about you, but it feels like it's hard to wait for something while also speeding it along, doesn't it? I mean, aren't those exactly the opposite things? So what in the world is Peter saying? How do we wait for and hasten the day of the Lord? Well, this is one of those many beautiful paradoxes that we're called to inhabit in the Christian life. In fact, Advent is full of these, isn't it? Advent reminds us of the dichotomy of light and darkness, of good and evil, of judgment and deliverance, of the past and the future, of joy in the midst of suffering, of singing while sometimes being silent. And then Peter says we ought to wait while we hasten. We ought to wait for the Lord while we speed the day. And we need both of those reminders. Here's why. Waiting reminds us we're not the ones bringing this about. I get so wary of the language of we are building the kingdom. We are not building anything like that. The kingdom is not achieved, it is received. God is building his kingdom. He is doing this. He is bringing it about. But at the very same time, hastening invites us to participate in it. We're not mere bystanders in this kingdom. No, we get to have a front row seat to what God is doing in and through his people in the world. And as we live like this, as we're drawn by God's grace into holiness and godliness, into waiting and hastening, we become a sort of movie trailer for the coming motion picture that will be the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness will dwell. And a good trailer, I mean, what's a good trailer supposed to be, right? How many of you already saw Star Wars? Good for you guys, right? Got after it. A good trailer is meant to whet your appetite. It's meant to pique your interest for the real thing that's coming in the future, right? The role of the trailer is not to answer all the questions and to clean up all the edges. No, it's simply meant to cause you to anticipate the movie that is coming. And that's precisely the role that we have in the church. As we live lives of holiness and godliness, as we wait patiently while participating in what God has called us to, we're like a trailer for the coming motion picture. We get to show people what life in the kingdom is like. We get to show people while repentance and faith is the answer. It's not something to be avoided. And we get to tell people the real reason behind Christmas. We get to tell people the real reason behind the proclamation of good tidings of comfort and joy this time of year, don't we? And one of the ways, if I can make this specific for you, that surely we are called to do this is by sharing the good news of the gospel with the people in our lives who need to hear it. Listen, the Lord's delay is at the very same time a commissioning for you and I. 
The Lord delays so that people might reach repentance. How do people hear about Jesus? We tell others about him. You see, the church, especially at Christmas time, we get a chance to declare and to display the excellencies of Christ. We get to point people to what all the forms of Christmas are ultimately leading to, what all the songs that we're singing are really showing us. See, we get to be a people who live as kingdom citizens and proclaim the excellencies of our King. This is a commissioning for us. As we close, consider what Fleming Rutledge says as she encourages us in this work. She says, The Lord is still out in front of us. His future still approaches. His future in which all will be made new. His promise is sure He will come and we make ready for Him this Advent season and every season by lighting whatever little lights the Lord has put in front of us. No light too small to be used by Him. Action and waiting, pointing ahead, looking to Christ and for Christ. Even our smallest lights will be signs in the world, lights to show the way, beachheads to hold against the enemy until the day when the great conqueror lands with Michael the archangel at the head of his troops, the day that shall dawn upon us from high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. See, brothers and sisters, until that day, we link arms by God's grace. We commit to living lives of holiness and godliness, and we wait as we hasten. We wait as we participate, looking forward to the second advent of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who has promised to come back for his people. Listen, if you've never put your faith in that promise, the Lord is delaying so that you might. So this morning, he beckons you to come, to come to himself. If you're in this room and you have put your faith in that promise, that life of repentance is to continue. And then we tell and we make much of our Savior at Christmas so that more people might be brought into the family of God. That's our commissioning, and that's our calling, and we get to do that together. Let's pray.